I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. In case your Bible doesn't just happen to fall open to Revelation from custom. Revelation chapter 20, we are continuing in a series of studies in Revelation. Today, looking at chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, word of truth, word of life, the word that points us to Jesus. And Father, we pray as we study it now that you would use it to that purpose. Father, that we might be saved and that we might grow in the salvation that is ours in Christ. Father, we pray for right understanding of this passage before us as we think about it. And Father, not only understanding with the mind, but with the heart, to feel the full import of the things that are described here before us. Father, we pray that we would be saved. Pray that you'd be glorified. Father, we pray our souls would be fed as we study your word now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When all is said and done, and a lot is said and done, everything comes down to the day that is described for us here in this passage. Ever since God created the heavens and the earth, ever since God said, let there be light, and there was light, ever since Eve and then Adam thought, "Mm, that looks good, let's take a bite, everything throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, human history since, your life, and whatever comes beyond us is all pointing toward, moving toward the day that is described here in the passage that we just read. The last day, the day of God, judgment day, the day of assizes, the final reckoning, the day of truth, really is the end of history. At least as we know it, history in this world, this is the final day. And the passage ends a whole section in Revelation that we have been going through that began with chapters 18 and 19, God's judgment on Babylon and its fall and the subsequent celebration in heaven that we saw, Jesus on a white horse destroying the powers of the beast, the false prophet, Satan bound so the church can spread the gospel in the world, released for a time to do its worst, and yet very quickly a vanquished foe cast into hell, forever. 
Well, our passage today is somewhat similar to the one just before with Satan's being cast into the lake of fire for eternal torment. In fact, I would say it coincides with it, but this too is a look at God's judgment. We've seen the beast and beast two, uh, the land beast, also known as the false prophet. We've seen them and Satan, the dragon, cast into the lake of fire. And here in this passage, we see God dealing with people. Uh, We also see what happens with Hades, with the lake of fire. As we look at this passage, I want to organize our thoughts under four headings. First of all, the throne, and then second, the dead, and then the books, and then the end. So first of all, the throne. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Jesus uh, or John, rather, sees this, this throne, and we've seen it before, like with the white horse, that white most evidently symbolizes purity, the saints in the white robes, but it also symbolizes victory or triumph. It may simply also just describe the, the, the radiant brilliance coming from the throne, from him who is seated on it, who is who? Well, Every time in Revelation we see a throne, for example, back in chapters 4 and 5, that great heavenly throne room scene, it does seem to be God, the Father, who is seated on the throne. And in fact, in 5.13, the heavenly hosts offer up praise to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which seems to distinguish the two. We've already seen the Lamb looking as though it had been slain, obviously representing Jesus. So we would assume God the Father is not God the Son, but God the Father is the one on the throne. How all well and good, but the Scriptures also tell us that Jesus himself uh, has authority to judge. Matthew 25, verse 1, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's Jesus, the Son of Man. Uh, Paul can refer both to the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, and the judgment seat of God, that reference in Romans 14, 10. Judgment seat of Christ, judgment seat of God. And if you jump into the next chapter, verses 5 and 7, it actually sounds a lot like both. We see references to the Alpha and the Omega. We might think God the Father But then he says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Sounds a lot like Jesus from John 7. And water uh, returns here in these final chapters of Revelation. In fact, a lot of early imagery in the Bible is going to make a reappearance as we get into the very final chapters of the book. But the reality is the passage doesn't say, is it the Father or the Son? It's sufficient to say it's simply God. Father is God, the Son is God, the Father judges but has entrusted judgment to the Son. It is God who is on the throne. And we read, from His presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, it's kind of putting it rather plain terms, what has been described and we've seen described in apocalyptic imagery, uh, the imagery of cosmic upheaval 
and turmoil that we have seen in other places in Revelation, and you see in other places in the Old Testament particularly, but an example, Revelation 6, 14, there was a great earthquake, the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Very vivid Uh, imagery kind of gets the heart stirred as you see this cataclysmic upheaval of the created order. It's much plainer here. It just says earth and sky fled away from his presence. No place was found for them. Describing the same thing, the, the, the end of this created order such as it is and such as we have known it and experienced it on this last day with the return of Christ We read earlier in our New Testament reading a description of the same thing in fairly plain terms. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth, the works that are done on it will be exposed. No place was found for them. It just seems to point to their their destruction, to the end of them, in order to make way for a new heaven and earth that comes next. More on that as uh, we get to chapter 21. But it's the removal of one to make way for the next. So that's, that's the throne. That's what we see, this majestic throne, the judge, the day of judgment has come. There is this cosmic turmoil as creation is roiled now with the end of its history and the beginning of something new. Second, we see here the dead. And a couple of verses, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And then 13, the, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. These verses describe the general resurrection of the dead. And by general, it simply means everybody. Everybody, it includes all people. It's emphasized by the expression great and small, which is a figure of speech. And we've actually seen great and small in Revelation, but it simply means you know, the two ends of the spectrum and everything in between, the great, small, and everybody in between. All of us uh, means everyone in between, believers included. More on that in just a moment. The second verse emphasizes the universality of the resurrection. That second verse we just read, uh, there in 13, the sea. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So we might think people who were buried in the ground, but also people who had died at sea, those who death under the power of death or Hades, which is really kind of the sense of it. It's sort of negative, but it's also kind of just refers to the state of being under the power of death. But the sea, death and Hades are put parallel to each other. It may be to portray the realm of evil. The Jews particularly didn't trust the ocean, didn't, tr- didn't like the sea. In fact, it was often a symbol of evil, of, of chaos, of the unpredictable. And that may be why in 21.1, more on this when we get there, says there's no sea in the new creation. I have to admit, that hurts my heart a little bit. I love the sea. This is the farthest inland I've ever lived. But that may also simply be symbolic for the fact that there will be no evil in the new heaven and the new earth. So this general resurrection of all people, this is not a surprise. The Bible has taught this all along. Remember what Jesus said in John 5, verse 28. Jesus said, an hour is coming 
when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And it's also what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25, 31. Uh, people sometimes refer to it because it occurs in, in the context of parables. Sometimes people refer to it as the parable of the sheep and the goats. But it's not a parable. It includes an analogy. Jesus doesn't introduce it the way that he introduces other parables. He might say it will be like you know, this, or, or the kingdom of heaven is like that. Jesus doesn't use those typical parable introductions here. He simply says, again, in just plain language, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep, the sheep from the goats. He'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So it's just a comparison. This sifting, this sorting of people is like a shepherd would do, separating sheep from the goats. But Jesus tells this in very plain language, pointing to something historical. He continues the analogy, placing the sheep the right, the goats the left. But he is describing the scene that we're seeing here at the end of Revelation chapter 20, Judgment Day. And Jesus ends that description with these words, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Judgment Day is coming, and no one is exempt. All will be raised from the dead. Of course, 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, what about those who are alive? Well, they won't experience death, but they will be changed. They will enter into their eternal state directly without having gone through death. We think Elijah did that. Enoch did that. Those who didn't die, but God took without experiencing death. And there will be those alive when Jesus returns, and they will simply be changed into whichever of the eternal states they will be in. And then the third thing we see here is these books that are referred to in the passage. John says, books were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the, the, the dead and the sea, death and Hades gave up the dead, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Well, what are all these books? Well, the multiple books seem to be the records of people's lives, whether there was one book for each person. And scriptures do tell us that the Lord writes every day of our lives in a book before as yet there was one of them. So maybe that's the case. There is a book that represents the, the doings of every single person, one book per person, or maybe books that had multiple people. It doesn't say. It's really beside the point. The point is all of our deeds are recorded in these books. Everything they had done everything they had said. Remember what Jesus told us in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
It's all recorded. It's all written down. Long before there was Google, God was tracking everything you did. It's all there in his books. Everything we've said, everything we've done, everything we've thought, everything we've typed online. It's all there. Does this include Christians? Yes. I absolutely think this includes Christians. One, because this is the general resurrection. It includes everybody. There's another reason that I say that. When you get to verse 15, it says, everyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire, which seems to apply there were there those there whose names were written in the book of life and they were not thrown into the lake of fire. More on them in a little bit. But it does seem that Christians, while our salvation is secure because of what Jesus did, that we will face some sort of examination or assessment of what we've done. Remember what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Clearly referring to Christians. Yes, he says, we were of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Clearly thinking of Christians. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is no ambiguity. Paul is referring to Christians. We, himself included, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as he says, to receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. Now, we're not saved by works. What we've done or what we've not done, that's clear. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. So what are we to make of this? Well, we are saved through works. That is the works of Jesus for us. Jesus kept the covenant of works for us and he died for our failure to do it. But it is also true as Christians that we will undergo an assessment of our lives, what we've done, not done. Give some evidence for that. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, this is why we make it our aim to please him, because it matters. Even for a Christian, obedience matters. Avoiding sin matters. We make it our aim to please him. Is this not what Jesus taught in the parable of the talents? where the master came back to see what his servants had done with what he had given them, and he rewarded them accordingly. So what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks about there's one foundation, which is Jesus, and we all build on that. And if you build with gold and silver and precious gems, or if you build with wood, hay, and straw, it's going to be tested by fire. And Paul goes on to say, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Because Christ is the foundation. Christ is our salvation. Which raises the question, how are you building on that foundation? It matters. It matters in terms of reward, in terms of commendation, in terms of pleasing the Lord. And praise God, our salvation is not riding on us. I praise God it's not riding on me and my life, but on Christ, his death for me, his righteousness for me. 
but the degree of reward in heaven seems to be. That's difficult because heaven's going to be heaven. I mean, if you're there, it's going to be heaven. It's going to be magnificent for everyone who is there. But it does seem that our obedience and our works in this life influence the level of reward or maybe the degree to which we are able to enjoy heaven and enjoy the reward in this life. It influences. It has an impact. So we make it our aim to please the Lord. Dear friends, don't presume on grace. Don't fall afoul of Romans 6 and think you can just go on sinning so that grace might increase. How we live in Christ makes a difference. It does matter. So that's the books. The other book is the book of life. Verse 15 makes it clear that this book contains the role of the elect. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, and earlier, Revelation 17, 8 refers to this book. It says the dwellers on earth, which by the way, is, as we've said, how Revelation refers to unbelievers. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. And so there's this book. It's the book of the saved. It's the book of those whose names have been written, as it says here, from the foundation of the world. Those who aren't in it are lost. Those who are in it are saved. It refers to the elect. Or if you prefer, the flip side, everyone who believes in Jesus. They are the same, after all. Every elect person, elect from before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1, 4 says, chosen in Christ from before the creation of the world, will be saved. And everyone who believes, believes because they are elect. It's, it's exactly as Jesus said in John six thirty seven: all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the elect. The one who comes to me, I will never drive away. That's the invitation. It turns out at the end of the day, it's going to be the same people. The elect are the ones who come to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus do so because they are elect. It's the same group of people. Now, we need to be careful here. We're not fatalists. Think, well, what if my name's not written in the book? That's not your concern. Scripture's word to us is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what we're to be concerned about. Am I trusting in Christ? Am I believing in Him? And if you are, and if you're walking with the Lord and know the Lord, if you're saved, yes, it's because your name was written in that book from before the creation of the world. That, we don't have the book. We can't see the book. What we can see is, if, am I trusting in Jesus? Am I following Him? And unlike the other books, this book, the book of life, is not about works. It's a book of God's grace. So it's not about our works anyway. It's the work of Jesus, the book of Jesus' works for us, given to us by God's grace. These are the ones whose sins are atoned for by the blood of Christ, who are covered in his righteousness, those the Father chose from eternity past, those Jesus redeemed when he died on the cross and rose again, those whom the Holy Spirit calls to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. So those, those are the books. All of us have a book recording everything we do and say, is your name in the book of life? Are you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't have the book. All we can know is, am I responding with what the Bible tells me? And that is to believe in Jesus and be saved. And then fourth, the last thing we see here is the end. And this is verses 14 and 15. And by end, I mean the end of 
this world, the end of this history, as we have known it, as we have experienced it, we read, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That is, the lake of fire represents the second death. So as with the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, the, the, which is the devil, uh, death and Hades themselves, the realm of the dead, the power of death is thrown into the lake of fire. Well, those, those are abstractions. That's pointing to a symbolic thing here. But it's basically saying death was cast into hell forever. Death is destroyed. Death is over. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There will no longer be death. No more need for this intermediate state for the souls of the righteous in Christ, the souls of those who are not to await this day of judgment because by this time in the passage, it has occurred and the permanent state for both is at hand. And that's what John means here when he says that the lake of fire is the second death. What is the first death? It's the death of the body. The death of the body is a result of sin, right? The wages of sin. What we deserve for sin is death. We must have had church bells installed. They're kind of nice. The first death is our physical bodily death, which we all experience unless Jesus comes first. We will experience, the believer will experience just like the unbeliever. That's the first death. The second death is to be cast into the lake of fire, which, which represents hell, or we could say at this point, permanent hell, the eternal judgment of God to be destroyed there forever. The beast is there, the false prophet is there, the devil is there, death and Hades have been cast there, but it's not over yet. Others are thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. These are people. People you know. People I know. Is there a literal lake of fire? Well, maybe, but I do think it's a symbol. I think it's a concession to the inability of our language to communicate fully the horror, the pain, the despair, the sheer misery of being under the unmitigated wrath of God for a moment, but not just for a moment. Forever. Forever. It won't be a party. Your friends may be there, but you won't be glad of it and you likely won't even see them or know them. And it's for eternity. No end no appeals, no parole, no second chance. It's over. That's why they call it the permanent hell, the permanent eternal state. Now, someone might say, oh, come on, no sin. No, yes, yeah, some sin is bad, but no sin is so bad as to deserve all that. Well, dear friend, the problem is not so much the sin itself as it is the one sinned against that makes the guilt eternal. Not the sin, but the one sinned against. Or what part of holy, 
holy, holy, did you not understand? That's why hell is eternal. Because God is eternal and infinitely holy. The day of judgment is coming. It will happen. It's something that a generation will be alive to see. And and if we're not there, we'll be raised up to be part of it. But it's not here yet. Today is the day of grace. Today is the day of the offer of salvation in Christ Jesus. The day of judgment is not here yet. This is the time now, today, in which God has offered forgiveness, pardon, reconciliation through Jesus, forgiveness of sins, and full salvation. Dear friend, will you not believe in him and follow him and be saved from the condemnation that is coming for all who are apart from Christ, all who are still in their sins on the day of judgment? Well, what about those who have believed? What about those whose names are found in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, as it's called in Revelation 13, verse 8? What about believers? What about Christians? Well, all we're told here, and it's more implied, is that they were not thrown into the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, which implies for those whose names were written in the book of life that they were not thrown into the lake of fire. What about them? What happens to them? Well, the final two chapters, we get, we get a couple of verses here, but the final two chapters of Revelation are about what happens to believers, about what is to come with a new heaven and a new earth. Trust me, it's where you want to be. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, and there will not be a person in hell receiving what they receive who does not absolutely deserve it. Father, there is not a person in heaven who will be in heaven on that great day, who in themselves doesn't absolutely deserve the lake of fire. But Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he suffered the lake of fire for me, for us, so that we who believe in him never will. We thank you, Lord, and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.